Greetings, Government 249. Uh, we're talking about Frederick Douglass this week and next. It's a pretty big text, our biggest text yet. Um, I want to say a little bit by way of introduction, just want to point out a couple of things to you all. Uh, one is you should check out the dedication page on uh, page four, just across the on the other side of the editor's preface page, uh, you'll see the dedication of the text. It is to Honorable Garrett Smith as a slight token of esteem for his character, admiration for his genius and benevolence, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, Garrett Smith, Hamilton College, class of 1816, and uh, prominent abolitionist, mm, uh, funded the raid on John Brown, funded Frederick Douglass's newspaper, The North Star, Etc. Just want to point out the Hamilton College connection for you. Um, you ever read Douglas, Professor Sullivan? Um, Narrative I, of the Life of a Slave, written by himself. May, he wrote three autobiographies. I may have. I can't remember. I may have read. Yeah, a lot of people do. Um, so he wrote three autobiographies. This one is the second one. Um, it was written in 1855 after he really rose to massive fame and acclaim with the publication of his first one, which is a much sort of more slender volume. Um, I can't remember if we read part of that in Equality. I read so many different excerpts of people's bio autobiographies mm -hmm. for that at the first class, and I can't remember Wouldn't what I ended surprise me. It's a very well-known piece of American political autobiography, mm -hmm. um, especially the first one is better known than the second one, though the second one has been getting more um, recognition recently. This nice edited volume, or this nice edition of it by David Blight accompanied an autobio um, yeah, a biography that um, David Blight published in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years or so. Um, it was Frederick Douglass that was famously name-checked by our President Trump um, that he said, right, you know, right. that Frederick Douglass yeah. was he was doing amazing things, yeah. and he was getting a lot more recognition for it. Apparently, not remembering that Frederick Douglass had died yeah. in the 1880s, yeah, many, maybe 1890s. Um, uh, so that was his most recent brush with fame. Brush but as a recurring uh, feature of, uh, I mean, a, a, a very um, prominent voice of 19th century radical right. republicanism, radical abolitionism, um, and just a, a very astute uh, and sensitive sculptor of American rhetorical symbols, you know? Mm -hmm. If I can, if you'll indulge a little flight of fancy there, metaphorical yeah. fancy on my part. Yeah. Um, let's just dig right in. I, I don't think that there's anything... I mean, if you've read Douglas's first autobiography, this one is really an expansion and there are certain themes that get the first one is just very condensed uh -huh. I think I did read part I don't think I don't know that I read the whole thing but I think that's what I think I did end up teaching part of that in the equality mm -hmm. class um, yeah makes sense this one it, it is in some ways not particular it, it doesn't have as many differences as does The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, which he published toward the end of his life in 1881. Right, right, Which right. covers not only new ground, but um, it is him reflecting on the Civil War and Reconstruction and the end of Reconstruction, 
So it's a significantly less optimistic book, whereas these first books that are published in 1845 and 1855, respectively, right. are right. really part of the abolitionist movement, right. and they are triumphant calls to action right. yes. and... Um, yes. You know, are significantly more. Right, I don't they know, have a different purpose. They have a totally different purpose. Yeah. So, if you love Douglas, which I hope that you do, I mean, he's a very, I don't know, Douglas is great. You're in upstate New York. You got to know more about Douglas since it, this was like his. This really became his turf in adulthood. Right. I'll try to post on Basecamp some pictures of where um, Douglas spoke in the city of Syracuse. I'll try and take some pictures of that tomorrow, so you can just see. Maybe it means we get to eat lunch out at one of the places that's now like a lunch. We could eat on Salina Street. I don't know. It's possible that we could eat on Salina Street. Or the Mission. I don't think we can eat at the Mission. I don't know if the Mission survived. Oh, maybe it didn't. Well, anyway. COVID. I mean, it it survived COVID. It was never open anyway. (laughs) Like whenever we tried to. No, I think. Didn't you know? Didn't you hear that the whole story on that was like it was a pretty (laughs) cocaine-oriented ownership structure? Well, seemed like it from the hours, but yeah. All right. All right. So to Douglas, from page 33. Living here with my dear old grandmother and grandfather, it was a long time before I knew myself to be a slave. I knew many other things before I knew that. Should I go ahead and read the other quote that's on the same? Go ahead. Page 35. There is, after all, but little difference in the measure of contentment felt by the slave child neglected and the slaveholders cared for and and petted. The spirit of the all-just merciful holds the balance for the young. If cold and hunger do not pierce the tender frame, the first seven or eight years of a slave boy's life are about as full of sweet content as those of the most favored and petted white children of the slaveholder. Uh-huh. Right. So here Douglas is setting out one of the themes of both of his autobiographies, and it's something that will continue to um, punctuate a kind of um, black autobiographical tradition, at least through the 19th century, which is this idea that childhood is this protected moment mm-hmm. in the life of someone's, um, in the life of even a slave, right? That like... Right. Even slavery can't quite penetrate the innocence of childhood, though there are certain moments that he will point out that it does. And childhood lasts eight years or so here rather than anything else. But this is a theme that persists in both uh, across both autobiographies. And um, it appears in W.E.B. Du Bois's sort of first autobiographies Uh as well as this idea that as a child, you know, race consciousness is not particularly strong and that... Part of the coming to maturity for black children is... Which, again, at least in this story of Douglas's autobiography, is uh, seven. Seven or eight. eight, Mm -hmm. Which is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. younger than our kid. Yes. So that's really... um, Mm -hmm. Just wanted to draw everyone's attention to this particular theme. This first section of the text, the first section of the autobiography, deals a lot with the ways in which slavery is a corruption of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see that in, in some of the ways that nature gets sort of, um, some of the ways that nature gets conceptualized here have to do with familial relations. Okay. So. Okay, so from page 39. I was a slave, born a slave, and though the fact was incomprehensible to me, it conveyed to my mind a sense of my entire dependence on the will of somebody I had never seen. And from some cause or other, I had been made to fear this somebody above all else on earth. Born for another's benefit, 
as the firstling of the cabin flock, I was soon to be selected as a meat offering to the fearful and inexorable demigod whose huge image on so many occasions haunted my childhood's imagination. Right, so here is Douglas describing for us what his childlike understanding of slavery is, right? Uh-huh. This is a very, like, that there's some demigod. That's the, like, that's master, the master of the house. Right, guess, yeah. and that he, this is what he means, that he is... Right, that that's at, like the, ter- that there's a terrifying unknown person. Mm-hmm. This is, in other words, like how slavery is talked about to the children. To the children. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So that you like, presumably there's like, you don't misbehave because of bringing the wrath down of the. Yes. And there were threats that if you misbehaved, old master would, that he right. describes in here. Right. So right. in a way, I mean, there's a certain. Um, it's like an actual real life boogeyman. There is a darkness there. Exactly. Right. That I think would not be lost on any contemporary reader. Right. I'm not sure how. Um, his readers uh, encountered that, but certainly that's how I encounter it. Is as though there really is a boogeyman, right? Yeah, those stories that they're true are yeah, like he might actually, come and get you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's depressing. Okay, but ima- I mean, but I, it, there again, it just goes to like the way in which this um, sometimes or apparently innocent experience right. of, like, telling story, like... Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that that's entirely innocent to begin with, even. No, no, I know. Today, but yeah. it, this characteristically innocent right. activity of, like, scaring children into good behavior right. with the threat of an imaginary boogeyman right. is for slave children, like, a corrupted... Right, like, right. the boogeyman is real. And might actually do those things as opposed to yes, and it's a guy. it's a corruption of childhood, right? Right, it's yeah, a corruption yeah, of the innocence of childhood, yeah. right? Right. Sorry, I'm taking my sweater off. We're outside, and it's a lot warmer out here than I was expecting. It's nice and warm. It was chilly this morning. It was a frost advisory, 38 when I woke up. All right. All right. So page 44. The order of civilization is reversed here. The name of the child is not expected to be that of its father, and his conditions does not necessarily affect that of the child. He may be the slave of Mr. Tilgman, and his child, when born, may be the slave of Mr. Gross. He may be a freeman, and yet his child may be a chattel. He may be white, glorifying, oh, glorying in the purity of his Anglo-Saxon blood, and his child may be ranked with the blackest slaves. Indeed, he may be, and often is, master and father to the same child he can be father without being a husband and may sell his child without incurring reproach if the child be by a woman in whose veins courses one thirty-second part of african blood mm-hmm. my father was a white man or nearly white yes and goes on to say that his there was whispered that his owner was his father mm-hmm. which is very plausible. Right, seems um, likely. Even likely, yes. Yeah. yeah, so again, we're just reiterating and expanding on all of the ways that this relationship corrupts this important natural... Of the family. It's sort of interesting because what we're going to talk about for my class is this book on the politics of gay marriage in Latin America. And it is about actors actually 
other social movements, right, mm -hmm. that are, like, pushing in the opposite way against this naturalized family, right? Mm -hmm. But here you see that construct being used as a way to, like, push against mm -hmm. a particular form of oppression, right? So, like, mm -hmm. it's like... Well, let's think about some of the audience that Douglas has at this point, right, which... It's got to be a lot of religious... It's a lot of religious folks. There's a lot of temperance movement, temperance and abolition right. movement. So there's right. a lot of, in other words, what there are are a lot of middle class um, white women mm -hmm. um, who are active in abolition circles through church communities. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, readers of Hannah Mather Crocker, right. for example, right. yeah. for whom family government oh, was the essential... Yeah. Like that was the essential unit of yeah. that was that was the school of citizenship, but also just an essential unit where rights were secured. Right. right. So so Douglas is playing within this world. Absolutely. Well, it makes sense. I mean, again, just like we talked about with um, with Croc Crocker, Crocker, yeah, Crocker, with Crocker, like that because that unit is so essentially important at the time. Arguably, still is important, but I think has lost some of its centrality. But especially then, right, is so important that, of course, like basing your political arguments within some mm -hmm. realm of the family. And then I think also if we think about this as like abolition as a social movement, I mean, the frame of like the man may sell his child without incurring reproach, right? That there's like a sense in which this is going to push your moral sensibilities. Certainly. Right. You know, like it's like also this kind of. You know, which if you're trying to be a call to arms in a certain regard, right, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, right, then this seems. Well, and if we also think about the way, moreover, the particular and specific moral sensibilities of women who are um, possibly emerging into, um, let's call them fairly like, protean women's rights uh -huh. ideas, this idea that now, right, so one of the ideas that he puts across there, right, is that, like, in slavery, there's a usurpation of the men over the family, right? Uh -huh. Like, there's a there's right. this built-in patriarchalism that these women are beginning to question, right? right? And that what Douglas is saying here is that, look at this, like, men are selling children. Right. Yeah. Right? And so in so many ways, I feel like we can see the influence, the persistent influence of some of these ideas that were, um, that we were, at least in our course, introduced to with Hannah Mather Crocker. Right. In addition, just the framing of the beginning of that quote, right, that civilization is disrupted because right. the family is disrupted, right? right? Yeah. And because the family is taken from, well, keep reading. I think, I think this gets... Uh, yeah, I think, I think okay. we get there. I think we're still talking about... Same. We're still talking about family stuff. All right, so page 45. According, accordingly, the tenderest affection which a beneficent father allows as a partial compensation to the mother for the pains and lacerations of her heart incident to the maternal relation was, in my case, diverted from its true and natural object by the envious, greedy, and treacherous hand of slavery. Yes, yeah, and then it go, Keep going. goes on on page 49 to say, The fact remains in all its glaring odiousness that by the laws of slavery, children in all cases are reduced to the condition of their mothers. This arrangement admits of the greatest license to brutal slaveholders and their profligate sons, brothers, relations, and friends, and gives to the pleasure of sin the additional attraction of profit. Damn. Yeah. 
So it's got a lot, lots going on there. Yeah. But I mean, so two things have happened there that in this um, discussion of the corruptions of family that have happened over the last three quotes. One is that you get this, um, the very last part, working kind of backwards, I guess. I mean, very the very last part is like bold, right? It's like not only is rape about like the man, the like whatever the p- profligate man's um, pleasure, but also that then that becomes another moneymaker is the like. Yeah, child, there's economic the incentive to sexual violence. By the rape is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, in certain accounting books of 18th century plantations, you can you can read about this that, I mean, masters were aware, right? This was right. not incidental. It's right. not like the men who were raping slaves were unaware that they were also Maybe adding to the holdings of either their master right. or themselves, right? I mean, this right. was... Right, fathers or, yeah. This was relatively well understood. Um but you also get this sense, right, that there's, so the quote prior to that mm-hmm. is like the disruption of the maternal-child maternal, relationship, yeah. um, which kind of follows what what I was hinting at as you were reading the previous yeah, quote, yeah. That, that basically everything that you think of it is, that's good about a family right. doesn't exist because of slavery. Like right. under conditions of slavery, the goodness of a family can't exist. Well, and that it's like also like, putting that as like that it's greedy which is i feel like another mm-hmm. thing in that early protestantism the family is a sanctuary oh but also in oh. like just that greed is like a so you, i mean i guess they were like trying to make money but i feel like that there's some sense in which like i think about these austere is that true i don't know Maybe uh, i think true. certainly i don't think what i i don't think that what you describe there the kind of Puritan austerity is incompatible, With but greed, I yeah. but I do think that certainly uh, dominant ideals about family and domestic life and domesticity right, that circulated yeah, yeah. in the gotcha. 18th and 19th centuries would say that you know that the family should not be a place where profit considerations are in place are in place okay. right. The family is free from that. That's precisely gotcha. why the family exists is so that people who are exposed to the to the uh, vicissitudes of the market have a... It's weird, though, because so much of the economy happened inside the family, right, with, like, subsistence. Well, a lot of economic activity was highly moralized at the time. Yeah, right, I guess that's right. All right. All right. Page Still on page 49. A man who will enslave his own blood may not be safely relied on for magnanimity. Yeah, you don't <laughs> say. <laughs> Men do not love those who remind them of their sins unless they have a mind to repent. And the mulatto child's face is a standing accusation against him who is master and father to the child. Mm-hmm. And then on page 50, mm-hmm. he's, he, Douglas says, There is not beneath the sky an enemy to filial affection so destructive as slavery. It had made my brothers and sisters strangers to me. It converted the mother that bore me into a myth. It shrouded my father in mystery and left me without an intelligible beginning in the world. There you go. And this here ends a particular unit of Douglas's thought where across about uh, three chapters, I think it's by the end of the third chapter that we come to this, maybe it's the second chapter, but there are, are I mean, basically he's covered all the bases for the way that families are. Uh, Do you know the like in 
from either his autobiography or from other things you've read, what had happened to his mom? Like, was she sold or something? Because it says he still lived with his grandparents. She worked for, um, he does, he, he relates an encounter with his mother in chapter two of this autobiography. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to say it wrong, so I will just invite students to return to that part of the text okay, because... yeah, it's not... I mean, it, I was just curious since... She existed. She was a bar she was barely a presence Right, because she was him. clearly in some other master's household. Yeah, so um, one thing that is curious, so Douglas is born on the eastern shore of Maryland into the uh, holdings, the large holdings of the Lloyd family and subsidiary kinds of plantations that the Lloyd families, uh, the Lloyd family owned. The Lloyds were one of the first families of Maryland. They were huge planters on the Eastern shore. He was born to Edward. He was born into the ownership of Aaron Anthony, a overseer for the Y plantation of the Lloyd family, which okay. was separate from the home plantation of the Lloyd family. Uh, so he was essentially owned by one of right. Lloyd's overseers. overseers. That's right. I remember, I definitely have read his, I, I'm almost positive I taught it in equality because we read some of the relations between mm -hmm. like his thoughts on the overseer, mm -hmm. his relationship with the master, right? There's like some stuff in there. Yeah, we get that. into this just a little bit. We get into this just a little bit here um, as well. But yeah, so it's a it's a highly complicated network of yeah but this, I this mean, next quote is actually about that yeah on page 57 as i have said of the overseer of the home plantation so i may say of the overseers on the smaller ones they stand between the slave and all civil constitutions their word is law and is implicitly obeyed yeah and so what what douglas is trying to what douglas is setting up in this next section of his text and and for what i've brought to us here today is the description and discussion of how essentially the constitution of plantation life goes, right? That uh -huh. Because there's no, because the plantation is effectively guarded from the civil constitution, mm -hmm. it establishes its own hierarchies, it establishes essentially its own order, right. which is separate and protected from what we might think of as civil law. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's constructed by civil law, of course, but in, in the no, way that... No, I get it. I mean, it's like little individual fiefdoms or something, right? I mean, it's like, or like lords and, you know, like the, the state isn't directly yes. governing the... That is exactly and right. And that's an interpretation of slavery that holds through, um, through to the 2000s. And it's only in the 21st century that we are starting to think about slavery as more intimately... Um, as more intimately explained by, you know, that it's not like a pre-capitalist feudal relationship, right, right, but right, is actually right, right. constitutive of... Right, right, right. I guess I meant more yeah. in the uh, authority yes. category than in the economics, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, but also, I mean, also going along with the economic interpretation of slavery is there's the reinterpretation of and the revision of, of American history that it's not as though um, that that in many ways American history is that slavery was of a piece with American history and not this like laggard right, vestige right, 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 right. that we eventually yeah, yeah. got rid of, but rather... No, I see, what, I, see what, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder whether or not... I, I don't know anything about this. This is not my area. But, you know, if you think about, like, part of what then seems like that analysis would sort of 
I don't know what the one of the. This is underlying the 1619 project that has been such a political football these days. Oh, uh-huh. the New York Times, the 1619 project is part of this, saying that like the real founding of the United States is 1619. Anyway, uh-huh. anyway, what I was just thinking was that you know if you think about what that would all right. So if you if you were going to take some of this to not be like to be more like modern capitalism and less like feudalism, right? Thing. But then I also wonder sort of whether or not variations in state capacity and in across the U.S. at this time then affected the relations between slave and master in a kind of overarching structural way. Not that you wouldn't have variation, but that like whether or not there were variations in the state laws or capacity or whatever that changed the lives of slaves more comprehensively if it wasn't fully determined at the individual plantation level. There, yeah, so, I mean, there are different laws about slavery across the different states. Right, so that do have things where, so in some states, it was illegal to um, manumit or to free elderly slaves. Right, 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 right. right. Where, not in all jurisdictions, right? So, so there is a whole complex administration of this in civil law. Right. Um, but for, for but what Douglas is trying to say here is like yeah, yeah. there is an independent sociology and right. an independent politics of plantation right. life. Yes, and obviously. Which yeah, even this new scholarship surely can't upend that. I mean, of course, there's no way that you could probably. Of course, it. of course. But right. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. But it is it's worth pointing out for people who are really interested in the history of slavery, which is a fascinating topic. Um, and if you're interested in it, please just let me know, and I can point you to some. Some really nice, like as accessible or as in the weeds as you want sources uh-huh. um, to to deepen your knowledge here. Uh, okay, but let's get to the sociology of Douglas's sociology of slavery. Okay, so page fifty-seven. Mechanics were called uncles by all the younger slaves, not because they really sustained that relationship to any, but according to plantation etiquette, as a mark of respect due from the younger to the older slaves. Strange and even ridiculous as it may seem, among a people so uncultivated. And with so many stern trials to look in the face, there's not to be, f- there's not be to be found among any people a more rigid enforcement of the law of respect to elders than they maintain. Right. So you've got here a sense of a hierarchy within the plantation. Right. But mechanics, who were also more skilled, right, right, uh, slaves were accorded a particular kind of place and a particular kind of respect. And there's a, a so, though Douglas presents it in this particular quote that you just finished as a kind of like, there is a great respect for elders. The next passage implies a, repression. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Everybody in the South wants the privilege of whipping somebody else. Which is, I feel like is like one of the most, uh, I mean, just in that little sentence that you just read there is like one of the richest mm-hmm. yeah. passages. Go ahead. Uh, Uncle Isaac shared the common passion of his country and therefore seldom found any means of keeping his disciples in order short of flogging. Oh, maybe that should be any. Seldom found any means of keeping his disciples in order short of flogging. Yeah, so uh, essentially, right, that there is this, that it also highlights another feature that Douglas is at pains to point out, which is the way that the enforcement of obedience within the plantation is in some instances left to slaves themselves Themselves, to work out, which is a, which is a, I mean, it's a brilliant way of 
keeping order order and obedience. Yeah. If any of the, your students in this class had me for comparative politics for the intro to comparative class. It's 112. 112. Yeah, I think that's right. One. Yeah. Anyway, um, they would have read old B. Moore's mm-hmm. um, book on obedience. It's a chapter of Barrington Moore's book on, on obedience. And um, one of the chapters is actually on um, concentration camps. And it talks about this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Getting oppressed people to oppress do the oppression. Other people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it has like a whole, there's a whole part where you see this kind of pattern happening. And like it's clearly undergirded by an overall system of extreme repression right right? so that like on top of this like you're like how could they do that and you're like well i mean part of how they could do that like with sort of scare quotes is because the whole system is so repressive that yes and douglas goes here as well in in the conclusion of this little section uh that you just covered i think it's in there um douglas will talk about witnessing the elder lloyd colonel Mm -hmm. edward lloyd the fifth governor of Maryland, not at the time, but uh-huh, eventually, eventual governor, maybe had been past governor of Maryland. Okay. I can't remember his, it's not important. Anyway. Um, aristocratic governor Lloyd uh-huh. whipping one of the oldest slaves on the plantation. Right? right. And Douglas describes it with this as like, as one of the most, I mean, it's in this sort of classic 19th century sort of sentimentalist style where he's just like, this is just there's just something so disgusting about right. this tableau right. of two like of one old man kind of ritually beating another old, old man, man. Right. and it was there was just something he's dis- clearly like there's a great yeah. moral and and aesthetic disgust yeah um, yeah, it's, yeah man. I'm sure that I'm sure all the students noticed that and were were equally aghast that yeah. Lloyd's going to come up in this quote here. Of course, Lloyd is never far from the surface uh, in the early part of this autobiography. So on page 64, the idea of rank and station was rigidly maintained on ah. Colonel Lloyd's plantation. Our family never visited the great house, and the Lloyds never came to our home. Equal non-intercourse was observed between Captain Anthony, Douglas's owner, and that of Mr. Sevier, the overseer of Lloyd's main plantation. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've got this rigid hierarchy and you've got this, these, that everyone has a place and a station yep. and there's no real mixing except right. when there is mixing. Right. Right. But yep. there is a sense of a kind of orderliness. Well, that at least in the, pr- the, like what's public, like the kind of public or like the manners suggest that there's no mixing. Right. So at least on yes. the surface, there's like no mixing. Yes. Yes, the the visible script right. of social relations is that there's no mixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there's a kind of I don't know. I mean, there's um, because these were such aristocratic people, you are left with the sense that despite the proximity that both uh, I think in another place uh, Douglas calls him Seaver. Uh, oh, that, maybe I said it No, wrong. no, no. He, it, it was, there was un, unclear spelling. Okay. There's a note from David Blight in the book uh-huh, about I'm that. Sure. Um, but you have the sense that the, um, it's not just that there's no mixing, but that in a way they are beneath right. the Lloyds, right? That the overseers yeah. are, even though they are, even though this guy owns slaves himself, right. even yeah. though he owns slaves that work the plantation, right. 
So he's not the plantation owner. He's not the plantation no, owner, even though he owns many slaves himself, right? right? Yeah. But there is still within this economy yeah. these uh, consequential hierarchies. Right. All right. Page 115. Which I think Du Bois would mean for us to feel affronted by. I'm sorry, Douglas. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm reading Du Bois in my other class, yeah. <laughs> 389, so it gets a little confusing. I think Douglas would want us as American readers in 1855 to be to feel affronted by this kind of aristocratic oh, right. yes, yes. social organization, right. right? So I think that part of what Douglas right. is trying to drive us at when he constructs the constitution of slavery is to show us that it is, I think he wants to play up all the ways that it feels feudal right. and monarchical yeah, yeah, yeah. so that right. we are able to, as Americans, reject that in the same way that as radical Republicans we reading Thomas Paine, yeah. we rejected this. We rejected the hereditary yeah. power. Uh, he'll he'll describe this in, 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 I think I've got another section for you or another couple of quotes that that I think bring this together, yeah. but but well, we are certainly smart, meant it's smart social movement. I mean, as part of an abolitionist movement text, right? This is yeah. like smart stuff. Like you want to draw on those things that made people feel radical and revolutionary, that mm -hmm. help them diagnose a problem, right? That motivate them into action, like yes. And you, you know. just see Du Bois, as I said before, he's sort of a a a, a, a brilliant sculptor of these American ideologies that are mm -hmm. in circulation, right? Yeah. Calling back to Payne, calling back yeah. to Crocker. Right. All right, keep going with us. All right, 115. Oh, wow, we were really skipping a lot ahead. <laughs> Slavery can change a we're in chapter 10. into a sinner and an angel into a demon. I hardly knew how to behave toward Miss Sophia, as I used to call Mrs. Hugh Auld. Right, so this he's been now sold to another, uh, he's been sold to the Auld family. Okay. They, um, they were the manager of Lloyd's Sloop. That would uh, take, you know, would go between Baltimore, Annapolis, and the Eastern Shore. Okay. Okay. So he's kind of, um, in this way, he views himself as having not only moved to, um, this is a significant uh, boost in Douglas's status. Oh, okay. To go to, uh, not only to be part of the family that runs the sloop, where... Um, where slaves are treated better because they have to be public facing in some okay. ways, right? They are, they are in a sense representing the Lloyd family abroad or abroad in Baltimore, right? Okay. Does this make sense? A little bit. I don't know. You'll have to maybe help me with the other half of this quote. So it says, "I had been treated as a pig on, on the, the plantation. On the plantation, I was treated as a child now." The crouching servility of a slave, usually so acceptable a quality to the haughty slaveholder, was not understood nor desired by this gentle woman. Oh, okay. So this is part of that public-facing. So he's now a city slave. He's right. now a house slave. Okay. He's, so he has not, now he is forced to reckon with a whole new constitution of slavery. Right, right. And a whole new like set of behaviors that are expected of him as the appropriate. Right. One. And yet he has been raised in this semi-feudal, right? Right. And so he doesn't know how to behave. Right. Right? Yeah. So what we're getting here and what I think what I want to draw our attention to is something that you that you mentioned earlier is that um du Douglas, excuse me, Douglas also has to contend with communicating to his readership that 
yeah, there is just a great diversity of experiences of slavery, right? right that like right, right, slavery right. on the Eastern Shore plantation right, right. looks one way. Right. Slavery among uh, so among the gentry looks one way. Slavery right. among the sort of middle class non-gentry looks another way. Mm-hmm. Slavery in the city looks different. Right. And even under the same owner, it seems like, like when he different, was on the... Different, so Mr. Hugh Auld, I believe, is Thomas Auld's son. So he's been, so he's sold from the Anthony family to the Auld family and uh, is transferred from Thomas Auld, the senior, mm-hmm. to his son Hugh Auld. Oh, okay. And given as a house slave to Sophia okay. Auld, and this will, um, and his, his responsibility was largely a kind of playmate and like uh, like babysitter-ish, playmate-ish babysitter. I mean, it's a role that we probably don't actually have, thankfully. Um, that so he's some kind of slave friend? Is she grown or she's a kid? Sophia is had, has had a, a child. And so... Oh, okay. So he has been brought into the old household in Baltimore to, play to essentially with the kid. and help out around the house. Help out around the house. To okay. keep him, to keep the baby out of trouble... To right. be a house slave, uh-huh. to be a male house slave. I was say, it's interesting that they had a man for that job. Oh no, that was very yeah, common to have. Common? Yes, butlers and cooks and drivers. Oh, I guess right. The, the the if you want to get into the sociology of slavery, here's an excuse to talk about Du Bois. Du Bois is eighteen. <laughs> You've been trying to talk about Du Bois is eighteen ninety nine text. The Philadelphia Negro goes into great detail right. about this particular kind of sociology of slavery and and professions that were. Um, and right. the way that yeah, occupations yeah, yeah. and professions sort of transferred right. from Developed slavery to freedom. Right. Um, but yeah, house, there were many, many house slaves that were, men, that were yeah, men yeah. And, and still coded as sort of masculine forms of labor. There were many that were domestic forms of right, labor that right. were coded feminine too. Um, yeah. All right. Sorry. On page 116, 17. The fatal poison of irresponsible power and the natural influence of slavery customs were not long in making a suitable impression on the gentle and loving disposition of my excellent mistress. A noble nature like hers could not instantly be wholly perverted, and it took several years to change the natural sweetness of her temper into fretful bitterness. Right. So this is something that is part of Du Bois and part of Abol- I'm sorry, part of Douglas. Sorry, part of Douglas's thought and part of abolitionist thought more broadly. That didn't appear, and I think this is interesting that it didn't appear in Hannah Mather Crocker, but this idea that the kind of inequality that represented by slavery is a poison mm-hmm. to the powerful as well right. as yeah, yeah, yeah. to the powerless. And it's sort of interesting that that isn't a feature of of the early women's rights discourse. Right. Yeah, that Hannah yeah, Mather Crocker doesn't say right. that you know, men are... The, right, the inequality. it's a poison to inequality of this between the sexes is also a poison to men, yeah. But, but so, which I find interesting because Douglas is so reliant on the same kind of ideology at the right. beginning, but then just extends it. Right. And uh, I think that women's... I mean, when we get to Firestone in the 1970s, we'll certainly see that. And I think that there are probably 19th century women's rights writers who mm-hmm. will extend who that. But this is a this is an important extension right. of this kind of, um, right. of this ideology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that slavery is as much a moral injury to the slaveholders as it is a physical injury right. 
to the slaves. Right. All right, on 117. The frequent hearing of my mistress reading from the Bible, for she often read aloud when her husband was absent, soon awakened my curiosity, curiosity in respect to this mystery of reading and roused in me the desire to learn. I frankly asked her to teach me to read, and without hesitation, the dear woman began the task, and very soon, by her assistance, I was master of the alphabet and could spell words of three or four letters. Master Hugh was amazed at the... At the something. Yeah, this is the next paragraph, simplicity. Simplicity of his spouse, and probably for the first time he unfolded to her the true philosophy of slavery and the peculiar rules necessary to be observed by masters and mistresses in the management of their human chattels. Right, so what Douglas describes here is it, it gets dramatized in, in his um, first autobiography and given a little bit more space and room to breathe in this autobiography is just the 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 signal importance of his learning to read mm-hmm. and that this was that in a way he will go on to say that in part it is the master's reaction to his learning to read that proves to him right how political it is how, how powerful, powerful it is. yeah it is right yeah and um and there's yeah, I mean it's just a it's just a nice yeah it's a nice set of passages. Go ahead and read the next one. I think the next All one right, covers 118. that. All right, one eighteen. It was a new and special revelation, dispelling a painful mystery against which my youthful understanding had struggled in vain. To wit, the white man's power to perpetuate the enslavement of the black man. Very well, though. Um, though I knowledge thought I very well oh, thought I very well thought I knowledge unfits a child to be a slave. I instinctively assented to the proposition, and from that moment, I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So it's this moment of, uh, for in Douglas's autobiography, this becomes an important moment of, of recognition of self-understanding, mm-hmm. and a moment at which. Douglas is now aware that slavery is not a natural condition, right? But an enforced condition, right? Right. And that it is enforced with not. And I think you know, obviously, he sort of notices that he has an inkling of this, but now notices the mechanism, right? Right. By which, so you've got this inkling that like your position in life really is unjust and against what would otherwise be the order of things, but it's confusing because you can't see well, how it works. It's so interesting because I just keep thinking, I, I know we have, there's, I don't know, maybe only one student that has, is also in my social movements class, um, but it was, it was reminding me a lot of, so like one of the things that, so we read the um, Cumbie River Collective mm-hmm. statement, which does a lot with this idea of like, it talks a lot about consciousness raising mm-hmm. and sort of this idea of the... Harriet Tubman, um, also born on the eastern shore of Maryland. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Not actually very far from where Douglas was born. Yeah. Um, Cumbie River is where she led, Tubman led a raid. She wasn't... In South Carolina. That. Right. Um, but the Sorry. collective is from the 60s <laughs> and 70s. Anyway, all this to say is that there's this whole thing about, like, basically, like, you know in yourself that you're oppressed. But mm-hmm. until you can, like think about that and think about that with others and like read and write and express yourself about that, that like it stays this very like 
personalized mm -hmm. thing. And so, like, the whole thing, I mean, one of the huge things that these women in the Cumbie River Collective did was they were doing all this, like, reading and writing and publishing their own, like, things became this huge sort mm -hmm. of powerful thing. And so it's kind just of like in the revolution, just like in the American revolution with the broadsides and yeah. the pamphlets. And yes. we're going to talk about it even for my class. And today, again, this like politics of gay marriage comes up where you see this again, this sort of power of ideas and like mm -hmm. the way in which like the ability to like have groups of people thinking through ideas together. So it's like, it's not like you're confused that you're oppressed. Like, you know that, but like trying to figure out how to like, talk about it and like think about like when you can't yeah, aren't allowed thing, right? to like do that because a you're not allowed to like you're not allowed to form a group right like mm -hmm. as a slave and then because you're in a repressive right mm -hmm. environment so that like becomes very hard to have like political conversations right and then on top of that that you can't read makes that like that transmission of those kinds of ideas even more challenging so of course like yeah you know this like learning how to read becomes this powerful tool in this sort of yeah and it's but again it's not just learning how to read but watching how that knowledge right is held is, away and like and how yeah. how much it terrifies oh absolutely yeah his master yeah. Right. right and it's like oh mm -hmm. I get it yeah oh yeah. okay so anyway. that's that's and it's one thing that it's one reason that um is one reason that college professors like to teach Frederick Douglass, right? right? Is there's this right. message that Douglass, that he's very self-conscious about the ways that knowledge is power. Yeah. I right? mean, I feel like I've been like thinking about that a lot this, uh, this semester, teaching social movements again, the particular way I'm doing it. It's like, mm -hmm. just keeps coming up over and over again. Well, um, I guess it seems true. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes I might, downplay it but in this moment this semester as these things keep bubbling up I think no it is true it's true all right 119 a city slave is almost a free citizen in, in Baltimore compared oh okay sorry a city slave is almost a free citizen in Baltimore compared with a slave on Colonel Lloyd's plantation he's much better fed and clothed is less dejected in his appearance and enjoys privileges altogether unknown to the whip driven slave on the plantation mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah Right. That's just, again, that's what we sort of have already talked about, right? The variation and the way that these... Yes, yes. There's This isn't a monolith that there's quite... Right, right. But also for readers who might be in Baltimore, he wants to also remind them that it's not as though... I mean, I feel like part of how Douglas constructs his autobiography is to suggest that underneath the world of city slaves. Right. Like, where do you think the city slaves came from? Right. Right. <laughs> well, and like that, like you could maybe convince yourself that this isn't actually that bad of a system. Correct. Right. If you just saw Correct. the the Baltimore slaves and you kind of thought was like looked fine. But yes. if you like actually went somewhere and saw the plantation. And immediately following immediately following the passage you just read, he describes a particular uh, family on the same street as the olds in the Hamiltons, and they were cruel to their mm -hmm. slaves, so and he, were they, they were kind of country them. mice who, who moved to town, who moved to town, and carried with them their country habits uh -huh. of cruelty. All right, so on page one twenty one, this is the last quote I have. It must also be remembered that the very parties who censured the cruelty of Mrs. Hamilton 
would have condemned and promptly punished any attempt to interfere with Mrs. Hamilton's right to cut and slash her slaves to pieces. The cruelty of Mrs. Hamilton is as justly chargeable to the upholders of the slave system as drunkenness is chargeable to those who, by precept and example, or by indifference, uphold the drinking system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, let's dispense with the temperance reference there at the mm-hmm. end, which mm-hmm. is just part of yeah, the world that. of abolition. So awesome. we can just, you know, mark like that, that down. It's called the drinking system. Yeah. It's funny. Anyway. Um, but yes, the but the larger point here is you know to call out the hypocrisy right of polite society yeah, who totally. would who would say oh my god can you believe the Hamiltons are so cruel to their slaves and yet Douglas is like well fight tooth and nail for the right for Mrs Hamilton to do whatever the hell she wanted to them right yeah right so even in comparatively genteel Baltimore the kind of civilization that you think you have is threatened by the existence of slavery in its midst. And I think this is the point. And it may be just down the street. You don't even have to get to the plantation. You don't even have to get to the plantation. And that it's, that it is the same thing. And I mean, this is the point that, uh, that runs through the remainder of Douglas's autobiography that just, he just keeps coming back to over and over again is the way that for his primarily white readers Mm -hmm. that they should feel and understand themselves as morally debased by the continued existence of slavery. Right. And he does a lot for, it's part of how he ends up kind of, I mean, I think it's part of why he constructs his story of his own sense of self and freedom in this, um, way of like knowledge is power is that he's I think in I think he's ultimately accepting and assenting to the general terms of his kind of the general understanding of society and and the ways of the world that his genteel audience is carrying with them and suggesting that that they are that by allowing slavery to persist, they are endangering this whole thing that they think is so important, right? right? This yeah, civilization yeah. that they think is so important right. is precarious because built on a foundation of slavery, right? Right, And um, that's the, we'll read a little bit more of Douglas, but this gives us like an introduction to the primary themes that run through mm-hmm. the corruption of, society, the dangers to the moral health of uh, slaveholders, and that knowledge is freedom, and that knowledge that knowledge gives one freedom that makes one unfit to be a slave. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are the biggies. It's big, big stuff. Big stuff, of course, of course. And like I said, I will um, do my best to, if the weather is nice tomorrow, get some pictures of some places in Syracuse where Douglas hosted important events in African-American history. Um, they're, they're truly just down the street, um, a short bike ride from our house and um, a short drive from yours. Um, I'll try to put captions so you can know exactly what they're, what they're pointing to. Very few of them are in um, particularly awesome shape today. Right, or like necessarily... Some like of them don't even exist. Like, um, uh, some of them have been you know, bulldozed and turned into um, 
offices and stuff. Yeah. One is a restaurant now. Uh, anyway, look for those on Basecamp, and I will uh, see you later this week, and we'll talk more about Douglas. And, um, yeah, uh, I look forward to seeing you. Bye.